Welcome to this BTOG podcast series. My name is Tom Newsom Davis. I am the uh, vice chair of the British Thoracic Oncology Group Steering Committee and a medical oncologist treating lung cancer. Uh, this is part of a regular podcast series entitled BTOG Does, where I have an informal chat with experts and hopefully we're going to go through some of the important questions about lung cancer diagnosis, treatment and all other things lung cancer related. Uh, it's important for me to say that sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in the planning content or delivery of anything that we discuss. So this week I'm delighted to be uh, joined by my colleague Neil Nivani. Neil is a consultant respiratory physician at UCL hospitals. He's the associate professor of respiratory medicine at UCL um, and a general guru when it comes to things all uh, lung and all cancer related. Neil, welcome to the BTOG Does podcast series. Thank you very much, Tom. Pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about diagnosis and staging. So BTOG does diagnosis and staging of lung cancer. We're going to start off at the beginning. So um, we're so familiar with doing a whole bunch of investigations and tests for lung cancer. We tend to stick to CTs. What should we be CTing and what should we not be CTing for our routine two-week weight referrals where we have a clinical suspicion of cancer? Thanks, Tom. So... Uh... Our NICE guidelines currently recommend that we carry out a CT scan with contrast and include the neck, chest and upper abdomen. The upper abdomen obviously including the liver uh, and adrenals. But I think it's a good question to ask because um, whereas the NICE guidelines recommend that, you could envisage actually that we might want to scan other areas depending upon the clinical history or symptoms. And um, there's always been an area of controversy about whether we routinely uh, image the brain. Um, so very clear guidance from NICE, but I think there's also a room for manoeuvre when we initially assess our patients, and we should really be scanning uh, anywhere that uh, uh, that's guided by symptoms as well. So it sounds like you're probably not doing a CT down to the pelvis if you've got no symptoms. To, to do CT neck, are you specifically adding in CT neck for that if, if someone says, CT chest, does that cover sufficient neck anatomy or should, would you be routinely adding a CT neck to your, to your cases? I know I routinely add CT neck actually. The, um, usually the um, CT chest only barely covers the supraclavicular area. So it would be much better routinely to include the neck. We all know how useful and important it can be to detect uh, lymph nodes in the neck. It just gives us a really good opportunity for uh, a quick diagnosis and really important for staging as well. So I, I would specifically add in a CT of the neck. Yeah. Uh, I think I need to change our practice in the hospital. Um, so PET scans are much prettier. You get fantastic pictures. Everyone loves a PET scan, but we're not routinely doing them for all cases, at least not in my hospital. Um, when should we be doing them? They are much more expensive. They tend to be not in the local hospital unless you're in a big cancer centre like yours. Um, when do you do them? When should we be doing them? When shouldn't we be doing them? Yeah, so PET scans, as you say, are really precious resource. We've got, you know, very limited number of PET scanners in the UK. They're a bit of a bottleneck for us in our lung cancer pathways. So I think it's right that we use them in appropriate circumstances. So um, again, NICE has got pretty clear guidance on this. So anyone in, in who is being considered for treatment with curative intent should have a uh, PET CT scan. So generally speaking, this refers to patients with stage one and to three disease, and that would be the most common uh, reason to do a PET CT. Increasingly, we 
treat people with oligometastatic disease with curative intent. And in those cases, a PET-CT is entirely appropriate. We wouldn't usually recommend a PET-CT in a patient who presents with advanced disease, so M1B or M1C. However, I know many, many centres also use PET-CT for, uh, to help radiotherapy planning uh, and also to help uh, uh, biopsy strategies. So there are a number of uh, indications, but the core indication really be, should be for, uh, for patients who are having treatment with curative intent. Uh, thank you. So you've done your investigations and CT neck included. Um, you find someone unfortunately who has advanced stage disease, they've got uh, a primary in the lung, they've got some lymph nodes, they've got some distant mets. Um, where should we be planning our biopsy? Uh, are you going for the primary or are we going for something more metastatic? What was the best practice? Yeah, thanks, Tom. And I think practice does vary here nationally and also internationally. So I think the, the basic principles are uh, first of all, in a patient with advanced disease, we want to choose a site that is going to be the most convenient for the patient to cause the, less, the least morbidity to, to that patient. We also want to optimise the sample so we get as much tissue as is feasible in order to carry out all of the appropriate biomarker testing that is now required. So we've got those two major principles that, that guide us. The third thing is whether we need further staging information. How confident are we that this patient has advanced disease? Could that adrenal lesion be uh, actually a, a benign adenoma? And therefore, if we're, uh, we can also use the biopsy to confirm our disease stage in, in certain cases as well. So a, a couple of important considerations there. I think generally we are moving away from bone biopsies. Uh, they are um, uncomfortable for patients and often the analysis and the decalcification process will cause DNA breakdown that's not going to allow us to do any of the molecular tests that we want. So, so bone biopsies I would strongly uh, urge to avoid unless there's a very clear uh, and large soft tissue component to it. Um, and the other thing that's emerging in the literature is perhaps the use of pleural fluid, and this is perhaps an area of controversy. Um, so uh, a couple of studies now, including one from the National Lung Cancer Audit that I was involved with, has suggested that the failure rate for molecular analysis from pleural fluid is twice as high as any other biopsy or, or uh, tissue acquisition technique. And I think we've all had cases where we do pleural fluid, we do a cell block, but actually there isn't enough material for, uh, for further analysis. And actually, I personally have changed my practice slightly when it comes to a patient with a large pleural effusion, where I will only aspirate uh, to dryness a pleural effusion for therapeutic purposes. And I would often be looking for other sites um, for further tissue. That's perhaps a little bit controversial and not yet um, in clinical guidance, but there's a paper, as I say, from the National Lung Cancer Audit, a paper from Kevin Blythe's group in Glasgow showing something similar where it delays pathways. But something perhaps to consider uh, when we're faced with a patient uh, with advanced disease. That is very interesting. That's very helpful. And I certainly agree with avoiding bone biopsies. It nearly always cross-links the DNA. You try to do molecular analysis and you get a big fat no. So I would concur with that one. Okay, so um, let's think about our stage three, our locally advanced patients. These are the ones we hope we're going to be going down a radical treatment, probably chemoradiotherapy with perhaps a bit of immunotherapy thrown in for good measure, 
or perhaps with surgery, um, how would you diagnose and stage these guys, the stage three patients? Yeah, so these are probably the most challenging group uh, for us in terms of diagnosis and staging. Um, I think when we are seeing a um, patient with potential stage three disease, I think we need to think about a couple of things. First of all, we want a tissue diagnosis. So we, we want confirmation of uh, a subtype of lung cancer. And increasingly, we want to know the pdl one status and uh, perhaps in the future as well, we will be looking at uh, genomic testing for that group as well. So, so that's the first thing. We want adequate tissue. The second thing is we want the most accurate disease stage that we can possibly get. So we want to know which lymph nodes are involved uh, uh, throughout the hilum and the mediastinum so we can accurately stage that patient. The third point is knowing as much as possible about the physiology of the patient to understand what treatment is going to be suitable for them. So as a minimum, when I see a patient with stage three disease in, in my clinic, I'm gonna be thinking about doing a PET-CT as soon as possible for systemic staging, and also to get an idea of uh, uh, lymph nodes, I'm going to be doing an MRI brain routinely. That's recommended by NICE. We know that there's a high incidence of occult, when I say high, sort of five to 10%, uh, incidence of occult brain metastases in patients with stage three disease. And then I'm also thinking about the patient's physiology at the same time. How can I improve uh, their performance status? How can, I, how can we maximize their ability to go through treatments? So I'm going to request pulmonary full set of pulmonary function tests, including transfer factor. I'm probably going to do an echocardiogram. I'm going to talk to them about smoking cessation if that's relevant. And I'm going to also potentially refer them for pulmonary rehab if that's appropriate uh, and available as well. So a number of considerations early on. And then we also at the same time within that bundle of care, we want to book a biopsy test. And invariably in patients with stage three disease, that's going to be uh, an endobronchial ultrasound. So it's quite a big package of uh, 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 investigations for our patients. It does take time with our patients with stage three disease um, to go through it, but I think it's really crucial to get all of that information together so that we can then discuss uh, in our multidisciplinary team meetings to work out the treatment options. That is brilliant, thank you very much. Um, for those of you unclear on what endobronchial ultrasound or EBUS is, we will come on to that in one second, so don't despair and don't panic. We're going to work our way back up the staging what about our stage one patients. In other words, these are the guys who have got the lung mass. They haven't got any obvious nodes that you can reach with your uh, with your EBUS. Do all patients with a stage one cancer in whom we are planning surgery need a biopsy? Um, or are there situations where we don't? So I guess I'm really thinking about the ones where it's a less accessible mass. People are more concerned about the impact of, of a pneumothorax on that. What, what's your take on that? Thanks, Tom. So my personal view on this is that we should aim to get tissue in as many patients as possible. It's nearly always helpful. There, there are uh, occasions where we can mistake benign lesions for tumours, so um, an area of organising pneumonia, an area of granulomatous inflammation, even tuberculosis, can really closely mimic uh, a lung cancer. So my, my default position is that we um, we take a biopsy as much as possible. 
in certain cases, that's the the uh, risks of taking a biopsy may well outweigh those potential benefits of certainty, particularly perhaps in patients with very poor uh, respiratory reserve in whom perhaps we're considering SABER. And if we have good evidence on imaging, good evidence of growth, we would often like to assess volume doubling time. We can calculate a HERDA risk score, which is a risk prediction model incorporating SUV max from the PET scan. If we put all those things together, we can have fairly high level of confidence that that particular nodule is benignant. And potentially in those cases, it might be um, might be reasonable if the MDT agrees not to take a biopsy and go ahead with treatment. Two caveats though. One, if, if that patient's going for surgery, they should have a frozen section ideally before a lobectomy. If not, they'll end up having a sublobar resection with the possibility of further surgery being required. The second caveat is a really interesting study that was published uh, last year in the learned respiratory journal Thorax um, that showed a worryingly high prevalence of pleural-based recurrence in young patients who were having CT-guided biopsies. And the study was really interesting. It came from the Far East, but did seem to provide fairly strong evidence that um, doing CT-guided biopsies in patients with very peripheral lung tumors, adenocarcinomas in particular, in young individuals was associated with a higher um, incidence of pleural recurrence. That's obviously needs to be confirmed, but it is something that people are worried about theoretically for many years. Um, and it might be interesting uh, to watch that space going forward. Fascinating, I've always said to patients, biopsies don't increase the chances of cancer recurrence, but maybe that is different. Um, okay, so um, thinking about bronchoscopies versus EBUS, um, just for some of people may not be familiar, briefly, Neil, for, for, for the amateur's guide, what is the difference between a bronchoscopy and an EBUS? Thanks, Tom. This is a subject close to my heart, as you know. So um, bronchoscopy uh, is a, a flexible um, tube placed down the nose or mouth into the airway. Uh, it moves around sort of uh, using a paddle at the, at the top end. We're able to place instruments down a working channel that allows us to take biopsies. But the main point about it is you can only see within the airway. So it's like being within a tunnel. You can only see what's on the in, in front of you inside the tunnel. One of the issues we know with lung cancer is that the lymph nodes are outside of the airway. They're in the mediastinum or there might be a lung lesion that's outside of an airway. And this is where endobronchial ultrasound really has transformed our practice. So the equipment itself is, is fairly similar, except in the tip of the uh, bronchoscope, there's a miniature ultrasound processor that's integrated into the tip. So we have a light to see where we're going as well as an ultrasound processor. So we have multiple screens available to us when we're doing the procedure. We're able to have a view of the inside of the tunnel, so the inside of the airway with the white light. But using the ultrasound, we can put the telescope against the side of the wall and we're able to obtain an ultrasound view of the mediastinum, the lungs, the heart, the esophagus, all of those structures within the chest that previously were generally inaccessible to respiratory physicians. The scope then has a 
working channel down which we can pass uh, a needle and then under that direct ultrasound guidance we can introduce a needle through the airway wall and into the uh, target structure um, and you know now with modern ultrasound equipment and small needles we can sample lesions that are three or four millimeters alternatively we can put large 19 gauge needles uh, down there. The total out diameter of the scope is usually around 7.5 millimeters. So this is, you know, still very small and extraordinary technology. And hopefully as technology improves and as the ultrasound improves, that will give us more room to put bigger instruments down so that ultrasound can go further out into the lung periphery. We'll be able to put bigger um, needles down for sampling. And then in the future, I'm sure we'll be uh, able to pass ablation catheters down for, for therapy as well. Um, I've, I've seen doing buses and I think they're amazing. As someone who the most specific thing I do is click a chemotherapy prescribing button, I'm always amazed by anything that you guys can do. When we're an MDT and a colleague in the MDT says, well, I think this patient needs a staging e-bus, um, what do they mean by that? What is a staging e-bus and what are you looking at and why are you doing it? Yeah, thanks. This is a really important area that's emerged, I think, over the last um, three or four years, really. So we divide eBus procedures now into two types of procedure. One is a diagnostic procedure only. So this is essentially placing the, the telescope in the airway and sampling the largest and most convenient lymph node in a patient with advanced disease. So we're not concerned about staging the mediastinum. We're simply focused on sampling the most convenient area to obtain the highest quality sample and material uh, for biomarker testing. So that's a diagnostic procedure. What we now in, uh, are trying to push and trying to encourage respiratory physicians to embrace is a staging procedure. So this is a different technique, it's a different approach and it requires a slightly different mindset. So this is a systematic approach where the ebuscope is used to sample lymph nodes in a systematic way. So we will start with N3 lymph nodes. So if you have a right upper lobe tumor, we'd start at the left hilum. We would visualize the lymph nodes there. We would then move up to station 4L, left power tracheal, station 2L, upper left. Um, we would then look at the subcarinal station seven lymph node before swinging over to the right. Still look at the upper paratracheal lymph nodes, 2R and 4R, still N2 lymph nodes, before finally sampling or looking at rather the N3 ipsilateral, sorry, N1 ipsilateral hyalur lymph nodes. So we would have this N3, N2, N1 visualization process. And as we go, we're making notes about all of the lymph nodes, ideally taking uh, pictures with our uh, ultrasound uh, probe and looking then to sample any lymph node that's greater than or equal to five millimeters. So this is then going to mean that we are sampling a variety of N3, N2 and N1, usually lymph nodes for a patient. This allows us to really get good quality staging and the, the prospective data now suggests that that's the most accurate way of uh, accurately staging the mediastinum. And uh, that's now also been embraced by the most recent NICE lung cancer diagnostic update in 2019.
you know, that is a fantastic summary. Um, thank you very much for sharing your expertise. Uh, so my thanks to Neil Navani. Uh, as you can tell, we're spiritual position extraordinaire uh, at UCL and good friend of BTOG. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. We hope we gave that an insight into diagnosis and staging of lung cancer. Of course, for more information on BTOG, including educational events and other podcasts, we believe this is going to be a, a minimum, a monthly uh, podcast. You can, of course, visit www.btog.org. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. Goodbye.